Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast, Season 5, Episode 3, On the Edge of Renown. History never repeats, but it does rhyme. Or so the saying goes. Maybe that explains why I like those biographies of successful people, you know, Steve Jobs or Abdul Kalam or the notorious RBG, all that stuff. When I'm reading these biographies, a thought can come to me. If only I could get myself in the same situation they were in. If only I could wake up as early in the morning as Steve Jobs or have that mix of cunning and grace of RBG when she was at law school. If only I could get there in the same situation or or a similar one, one that rhymes with what they went through, then I could achieve what they have. History never repeats, it rhymes. And this wasn't just a modern thought. The indications are that that was the same way that some Indian kings thought too. Because after each great empire, there are a host of wannabe kings who tried to form an empire along the same sorts of lines, that they copied the previous empire, they adopted the coinage of the previous empire, the script, the idea of what it is to be a king, the clothing, the administrative structure. Sometimes these wannabe kings even copied the names of the previous empire. It's almost impossible to resist the idea that these kings were trying to find the rhymes in history trying to get back to that same situation, or near enough, which propelled the previous empire to greatness. Bad news, though. The trick doesn't work. History doesn't rhyme. Or at least, we can't make it rhyme. Waking up at the same time as Steve Jobs hasn't made me head of Apple, and using Gupta imagery in your coins doesn't make you into the new Gupta empire. Of all of the kingdoms hoping to get an Indian empire for themselves, very few made it. The vast majority fell by the wayside, shrinking back down to a small power or disappearing entirely. Today, we hear the story of two such kingdoms, heading for greatness and almost getting there. Everything seems to be exactly on track, closer to the previous empire than you could have hoped for. But before the end of the episode... Both these kingdoms will mysteriously stutter and then stop. On that bright note, ready? Let's go. In the centre of a great hall, surrounded by soldiers and advisers, sits a throne of carved lions. And on top of the throne sits the king. His hair's probably shaved below the level of his eyebrows, just like most people of his kingdom. A string of ocean pearls rests on his chest. His ears are heavy, his lobes stretched down to his shoulders by gold and jade ornaments. His arms and legs are heavy with amber, with mother of pearl and rock crystal. And his nose is filled with the scent of perfume and flowers rising from his feet. And above him, in the centre of his palace, there's a tower, seven storeys high. You can just see the copper tiles of the roof glinting in the sun. And from there, you can see copper pipes running down the sides, ending in spouts shaped like makras, where the water rushes out. 
This man is Narendra Deva, King of Nepal. No relation to current Prime Minister of India, as far as I know. But Narendra Deva's life wasn't always as grand as his surroundings indicate. He spent his youth in exile, on the run. It all started more than a generation before, the time of the previous episode. Back then, the old king of Nepal was devoted to his own purity more than to the ruling of his country. So the prime minister, the Mahasamanta, gradually took control of the kingdom. The prime minister built his own palace a little way away from the palace of kings, and he issued orders from there. And soon the prime minister was king in all but name. And this prime minister passed the kingdom on to his son, a man called Jishnagupta. Now, Jishnagupta, a bit like his father, carried on the pretense that there was still a king of Nepal. So there was still a chap ruling from the palace of kings, at least nominally. But Jishnagupta was not quite as comfortable with humility as his father was. He used royal titles not only to describe this, this puppet king, but also to describe himself. That's something his father had never done. Jishnugupta talked of himself as king, and he talked to him of his own son, not as the son of, of a prime minister, but as the crown prince, the future king. Now, sure, the puppet king still gets a mention in Jishnugupta's inscriptions, but it's obviously just a, a token. It's probably not meant to be understood as anything else. So the Lachavi royal family who had ruled Nepal were increasingly under the thumb of the prime minister's family. But one of the Lachavi family was not so compliant as the puppet king. He was a prince. He was called Udayadeva, name not on the test. And when the prime minister took control, Udayadeva took himself and his son into hiding and then at the first opportunity, they left Nepal, fleeing over the Himalayas into Tibet. And when they were into Tibet, the prince spent his days looking for a way back, back to Nepal, and most importantly, back to the kingship. So he worked his way into the good graces of the king of Tibet. Tibet at the time was the powerhouse of the region, militarily at least. And the prince also worked his way into the good graces of the Chinese. The Chinese ambassadors and traders were coming increasingly often to the court of their new Tibetan ally, and they were looking for ways to expand their own influence in the region. A good place to get some backing. It's likely that this Lachavi prince brought with him into Tibet some Indian culture, because at this point in history, Tibet suddenly starts picking up a bunch of Indian culture that had passed them by. The Gupta script, for example that was used in the Gupta Empire, but had since fallen out of fashion in North India, at this point, it was taken up by Tibetans. And Buddhism. Nowadays, I associate Buddhism very closely with Tibet. Actually, it passed Tibet by for a long period. China had had Buddhists since the early centuries BC, but Tibet really didn't have any. More recently, it had a few, but... Only in the aristocracy, it seems, it had never really taken root. But now, with this Lichavi Nepal prince roaming around Tibet, trying to make connections, Buddhism started to take root. And then, something changed. 
In 639, they found a new way to get back to Nepal. I mean, literally a new way. The passes between Nepal and Tibet had been difficult, even for small groups to travel, and nearly impossible for large groups. But in 639 AD, a new pass was opened out. Nowadays, it's called Tongla, which, as far as I can make out, means something like, from which is visible from the pass. But bear in mind, I know absolutely no Tibetan. I think it's a shortening of a longer name. The pass runs beneath the Shisha Pungwa, the 14th highest mountain in the world. It's got two peaks, and in fact the pass below also has two peaks, although it's nearly 3,000 metres lower. That's still really high, high enough that oxygen is in short supply. Your body can suffer from altitude sickness easily, and your car can refuse to start. But... It was a better road from Tibet to Nepal than had been opened yet. Actually, it's probably the best road between Tibet and Nepal still today. It was a road which could take a good number of people and make it out the other side. Maybe enough people to form an army. But by this time, the prince in exile in Tibet had grown old or died His son had taken up the government in exile, picked up the goodwill earned by his father with the Tibetan king and the Chinese. So everything was ready. Had the soldiers from Tibet and China, we had the road, we had a prince ready to take back Nepal from the prime minister's family. So, in 643 AD, a few years after the pass opened, Narendra Deva marched back into Nepal. He overthrew the Prime Minister, he threw out the little Lichavi royal puppet, and he took the throne back for himself. A restoration of true Lichavi rule, and Nepalese independence. Well, not quite independence. After all, Narendra Deva had only got the throne back with a lot of help from the Tibetans and also from the Chinese. There were lots of favours to be repaid, Narendra Deva was king in his own land, but he served other kings. Nepal seems to have been subservient to Tibet in some way or other before this time, but now it came to be almost outright ruled by them, a tributary state. The place was ruled by Mlechers, as some of the chronicles say, barbarians. And it wasn't just Tibetans who had a say over Nepal. The Chinese also helped Narendra Deva onto his throne, and they also wanted payback in the form of influence. Narendra Deva owed them. So early in his reign, when a Chinese ambassador came through the new pass on his way to India, Narendra Deva welcomed him with a a great fuss, a great joy. He took him on a sightseeing tour. They went to hot springs where a tank of water was constantly boiling up and giving off this strong metallic smell. There's actually a lot of stories about various different hot springs in Nepal, water giving off flames or or being so hot you could boil your lunch in it, that sort of thing. And in most parts of the world, that would make you think there's magma somewhere very nearby, maybe even a volcano. But in Nepal, the magma is kind of buried under the Himalayas and there aren't any active volcanoes, or even dormant ones, I think. But there are hot springs, and they're still there today, churning out water. And the water really is hot enough to boil vegetables in, in some places. Sadly, there's no way of telling which one of them Narendra Deva and the Chinese ambassador went to see. 
Not long after that ambassador, another Chinese ambassador came to Narendra Deva. This time, though, it wasn't a courtesy call. There would be no time for sightseeing. Because this time, the ambassador was in a desperate situation. He had gone to see Harsha, but Harsha had died. And whoever had inherited his kingdom was in a belligerent mood and insecure enough to want to attack and kill a Chinese ambassador. So the ambassador fled to Nepal, seeking help from the allies of China, calling in the favours they'd been paying out. And sure enough, King Narendra Deva sent out up to 7,000 men on horses, along with a contingent of Tibetan soldiers, down into India. This is sometimes talked about nowadays as if it were a Chinese invasion of India. Some people even use it to make people in modern-day India angry at the modern Chinese state. And that's rather odd because, well, really what this is, is friends of Harsha attacking an usurper of his kingdom. This is sort of a defence of, of an Indian kingdom more than an attack on one. And it's not really a Chinese invasion, After all, there are only about three Chinese people involved. Really, this is a sign that the plains of North India were no longer cut off from Nepal. It was a sign that the distance between North India, Nepal, Tibet and China was getting very small. The story goes that when the hard times came, Narendra Deva himself left Nepal and, and went out into North India. He may already have ruled the fertile lands just outside the mountain passes, the outer Terai, part of modern-day Nepal. But even those fertile lands must have had failing crops, and the inner Terai too, because Nepal was experiencing a drought, brought on, they said, by the imprisonment of some angry Nagas. So Narendra Deva worked out how to lift the drought. He went into North India with a small bunch of soldiers, headed east into Assam, and there they found an idol, three feet high, bright red. They escorted it back to Nepal. And as they carried it through the ravine into the valley of Kathmandu, the gods of the valley gathered to see this newcomer. But they were impressed, and they decided that this new god would become lord and protector of Nepal. They gave him a name, Matsendranath. And so it was that the worship of Matsendranath became a central part of Nepalese life for centuries. Buddhists took him to be a form of Padmapani, the compassionate Bodhisattva. Shaivites took him to be a form of Shiva. And the year started with his festival. The gods put on his carriage, and then the carriage is taken around the city the king following behind on foot, maybe just like Narendra Deva did when they carried the idol in from Assam. So the carriage was led around the valley until it came to the great open hall in front of the royal palace. And there the king would go in and sit on his stone throne. And with that, the new year would begin. Shortly afterwards, the rains would come. They were the sign that the protector god of Nepal was ensuring that drought was kept away for another year. The festival still goes on today, though of course without the royal involvement. And even if you're not lucky enough to go during festival time, there are still plenty of temples of Masendranath across Nepal. It's also said that Narendra Deva had a guru, one he loved. 
And this guru was killed by magic. As he died, his soul entered the right foot of Masendranath. When Narendra Deva heard the news that his guru was dead, he was distraught. So distraught that four days later, he himself died of grief. And his soul entered the left foot of Masendranath, side by side with his teacher. Cast your mind back to how the Gupta kingdom became an empire. Back then, it was ruled by King Chandragupta I. He inherited a decent-sized kingdom, but he expanded it. He managed to conquer Magda, and he set his capital in the old seat of emperors, Pataliputra. And he allied himself with the Lichavis from the north, marrying one of their princesses, Kumara Devi. And that alliance between Magda and Lichavi was crucial The couple are commemorated on all of King Chandragupta's coins. Every single gold coin Chandragupta ever made has both him and by his side his wife. In some of them, he's raising her head with his hand in a sign of affection. And even the name Lichava or Lichavia is written on these Gupta coins. But alongside those words commemorating that important alliance are some other words. Maharaja Adiraja, proclaiming that, for the first time, the Gupta king had become emperor of India. That thought would surely have been exciting to the new generation of rulers in the time of this episode. Up in Nepal, Narendra Deva had passed the kingdom to his son Shivadeva. Down in Magda, Aditya Sena, see episode 5.1, Aditya Sena had passed his kingdom to his son, Deva Gupta. And just like in the days when the Guptas founded their empire, the kings of Magda and the Lichavis were tied by a marriage alliance. It had really been the old king of Magda's doing, Aditya Sena. He had married his daughter to the jewel of the Lichavi royal family. A daughter had come out of that marriage, and that daughter had married the new king of Nepal. So, the current Lichavi king was the Gupta's king's sister's son-in-law. David Gupta still even had some of the ties to China formed in the time of the original Gupta empire. There was a Chinese temple built in Magda, supposedly by the founder of the Guptas, and it was still there. And now it lay within David Gupta's lands. And he let word go out that If any Chinese monk came, he would give the temple back to them. This message made it as far away as China itself. So there was another tie, another similarity, another rhyme with the founding of the Gupta Empire. Imagine that you're Deva Gupta, and you're thinking back to how the Gupta Empire was founded, and you tick things off. The Guptas back then were allied with the Chavi as well, My name's Gupta too, and I'm also allied with the Lichavis, through marriage. Back then, the Guptas had just got control of Magda. Well, I've just got control of Magda. The kingdom was carved out by my father, maybe covering most of North India, actually. You couldn't have hoped for a closer recreation of the founding of the Gupta Empire. 
All of that was exactly what the Guptas did, and now I, David Gupta, am doing the same thing. Surely I'm just on the cusp of founding a great and lasting empire. And at first, things really did seem to be going in that way. Up in Nepal, Shivadeva the king managed to get rid of his father's debts. His father had come to the throne with Tibetan help and was more or less a tributary king of theirs. But under Shivadeva, Nepal seems to have grown increasingly distant from Tibet, ever less likely to remember the old debts or consider them repaid perhaps. Or maybe Tibet just got greedy, because in 703 AD, Tibet marched into Nepal to stake a claim over the territory more firmly. But it didn't have the intended effect. Tibetan forces were smashed, the king of Tibet was killed, and the remainder of the army scattered, fleeing as they could over the mountains. So resolutely were the Tibetan army defeated that they wouldn't attempt another invasion of Nepal. So, with the north kind of locked off, Nepal turned its eyes to the south, to the plains of India, adopting an ever more orthodox, brahminical outlook. Cow veneration, Brahmin veneration, veneration, a purity of Sanskrit came back. Down in Magda, the later Gupta king was having battles of his own. The Chalokyas were invading from the south. We'll, we'll tell the full story in a, a later special episode, but even the outline is a juicy tale. The Chalokyan kings at the time seemed to repair their sons for rulership by sending them out on a military adventure. And by military adventure, I don't just mean a, a few weeks in the wild. I mean whole-blown invasions with the prince commanding the full army. Well, at this point in history, the Chalokyan king decided to send his son off for a military expedition to North India. And his son proved more than up for the challenge. He took down a series of kingdoms across the Deccan Plateau, and then he made his way down into the valley of the Ganga. And there he faced the paramount leader of North India, almost certainly Devagupta. It came to battle, and the Chalokyan prince won, at least according to Chalokyan records. He captured a standard and a drum. Though the defeat must not have been too bad, because the effect was not permanent. Devagupta controlled pretty much the same lands that his father had given to him in Magda and beyond, and he passed them down intact to his son. So there was this great crescendo of power, everything trending towards another peak of empire, and then, then, well, almost nothing. Up in Nepal, the Lichavi kingdom was passed on to the next king, Jayadeva. He married uh, someone called Rajamati, who was daughter of a king called Harsha. Might have been king in Assam. More likely was just too minor to be recorded in history. The new king of Nepal fancied himself a bit of a poet, inspired, it seems, by the great Gupta-ear Sanskrit poet Kalidasa. And in fact, we have some of the king's poetry left still today. It's in the important Pashupati temple near Kathmandu. The temple itself is a glorious thing, a world heritage site. It's surrounded by a field of pools and shrines, and, and the river runs right through this complex. There are cuts on both sides going down to a narrow channel, 
And on the side of the guts on one side, there's a row of shrines. And on the other side, the main temple complex. The temple has those classic double roofs you can find in Nepalese architecture. And behind its silver doors sits the lingam with five faces. On the sides, you've got Shiva, Surya, Vishnu, Buddha. And on the top, the universal. And although it might seem like a, a Shaivite temple, this is a place for both Shaivite and Buddhist worship. Buddhists worship the god as Padmapani again. And up there, near the main temple, behind the Nandi statue, is the inscription. Most of it's written by a court poet, and is curiously anti-Buddhist for such an ecumenical site. But the first couple of lines, the ones praising Shiva, they're written by the king himself. But of the king's political, military accomplishments, we know almost nothing. Meanwhile, down in North India, the kingdom passed into the hands of Vishnu Gupta, but we know even less about him. In fact, we only really have his name, because someone in a village somewhere donated some oil, and for some reason wanted a stone inscription marking the event. And by the by, in the inscription, he mentioned the king's name. And after that generation, well, the political history sort of sputters and spurts into nothing almost. Up in Nepal, well, the Lacharis kept on ruling for another 150 years, but they would never form a kingdom outside their mountain stronghold. Down in Magda, it's just plain confusion for a while. After that, another king, Javita Gupta, takes control, and we know about him because we found his inscription, but of his acts, of his kingdom, we don't really know too much. And of his successors, we know nothing at all. The people on the plains of North India and the people on the hills of Nepal carried on with their lives, with no Lichavi, no later Gupta emperor to interfere. But a great empire was coming, not from Nepal, not even from Magda, but from Harsh's old capital. And that's a story for the next episode. Every week we read something from the original sources, and this week I thought we'd read with that inscription from Jivita Gupta, the last kings we mentioned. It's a patchy inscription, many of the words are chipped away. That's really a good picture for what the history as a whole of this period is like. And the inscription goes like this. Reverence to something, something, something. Hail from the victorious camp, possessed of shouts of victory, acquired by the three constituents of power, and invincible to its equipment of great ships and elephants and horses and foot soldiers, and situated near the fort of Gomatikotaka. There was, something, 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 the illustrious Madhava Gupta. His son, who meditated on his feet, was the most devout worshipper of the Divine One, the glorious Aditya Senadeva, begotten on the Paramabhattarika, the Queen, the Mahadevi, the glorious Srimati Devi. His son, who meditated on his feet, was the most devout worshipper of the god Maheshwara, the Paramabhattarika, Maharaja Adiraja, 
the something something something, the glorious Deva Gupta Deva, begotten on the Paramatarika, the Queen, the Mahadevi, the glorious Kona Devi. His son, who meditated on his feet, was the most devout worshipper of the god Maheshwara. The Paramatarika, the Maharaja Aduraja, the Parameshwara, the glorious Vishnu Gupta Deva, begotten on the Paramatarika, the Queen, the Mahadevi, the glorious Kamala Devi. His son, who meditates on his feet, was the most devout worshipper of something, something, something. The Paramatarika, Maharaja Raja, and so forth and so on. Pretty soon, the inscription descends into just a series of names without any context. Rajputras, Rajamachyas, Mahadadanyakyas, Mahapratiharas, something, 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 Kumaratyas, Rajasthanivas, Uparikas, something, 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 Dandikas, Dandapashikas, of the village of Varunika, which lies in the something, 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 in the Nagara Bukti, and something, something, something. By the time the inscription starts to make any sense again, it goes a bit like this. By the Bojaka Surya Mitra, belonging to the establishment of the divine god, the holy and sacred Varunavasin, who was requested something, 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 the above-mentioned village, something, 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 together with something, 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 and the village and co. was formally bestowed by the Parishvara, the glorious Baladitya Deva, by his own charter, something, something, something. Therefore, I announce that is assented to something, 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 such is my command to all people, something, 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 the altar of the god Varunavasin. After that, there is given something, 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 with the something, something, the ten offences, the five, something, something, something. All of that was pretty confusing, hard to make any sense of, much like the history of the period was becoming. I hope you enjoyed the episode, though. If you did, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snehal Situ Patrick Memorial Fund. There are details on the website. There's a link in the description. Apologies for the rather nasal sound and the lateness. They're related. I've had a bit of a cold. Hopefully, next week all will be clear and on time. Until then, have a great week. Take care.